Chapter 13 of Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology by Carl Gustav Jung. Translated by Constance Ellen Long. Chapter 13 The Content of the Psychoses. Part 1 Introduction. My short sketch on the content of the psychoses, which first appeared in the series Schriften zur Angewandten Seelekunde under Freud's editorship, was designed to give the non-professional but interested public some insight into the psychological point of view of recent psychiatry. I chose, by way of example, a case of the mental disorder known as dementia precox, which Bleuler calls schizophrenia. Statistically, this extensive group contains by far the largest number of cases of psychosis. Many psychiatrists would prefer to limit it and accordingly make use of other nomenclature and classification. From the psychological standpoint, the change of name is unimportant, for it is of less value to know what a thing is called than to know what it is. The cases of mental disorder sketched in this essay belong to well-known and frequently occurring types familiar to the alienist the facts will not be altered if these disorders are called by some other name than dementia precox. I have presented my view of the psychological basis in a work whose scientific validity has been contested upon all sorts of grounds. For me, it is sufficient justification that a psychiatrist of Bleuler's standing has fully accepted, in his great monograph on the disease, all the essential points in my work. The difference between us as to the question whether, in relation to the anatomical basis, the psychological disorders should be regarded as primary or secondary. The resolution of this weighty question depends on the general problem as to whether the prevailing dogma in psychiatry, disorders of the mind are disorders of the brain, presents a final truth or not. This dogma leads to absolute sterility as soon as universal validity is ascribed to it. There are undoubted psychogenic mental diseases, the so-called hysterical, which are properly regarded as functional in contrast with organic diseases which rest upon demonstrable anatomical changes. Disorders of the brain should only be called organic when the psychic symptoms depend upon an undoubtedly primary disease of the brain. Now in dementia precox, this is by no means a settled question. Definite anatomical changes are present but we are very far from being able to relate the psychological symptoms to these changes. We have, at least, positive information as to the functional nature of early schizophrenic conditions. Moreover, the organic character of paranoia, and many paranoid forms, is still in great uncertainty. This being so, it is worthwhile to inquire whether manifestations of degeneration could not also be provoked by psychological disturbance of function. Such an idea is only incomprehensible to those who smuggle materialistic preconceptions into their scientific theories. This question does not even rest upon some fundamental and arbitrary spiritualism, but upon the following simple reflection. Instead of assuming that some hereditary disposition, or toxemia, gives rise directly to organic processes of disease, I incline to the view that upon the basis of predisposition, whose nature is at present unknown to us, there arises a non-adaptable psychological function which can proceed to develop into manifest mental disorder. This may secondarily determine organic degeneration with its own train of symptoms. 
In favor of this conception is the fact that we have no proof of the primary nature of the organic disorder, but overwhelming proofs exist of a primary psychological fault in function whose history can be traced back to the patient's childhood. In perfect agreement with this conception is the fact that analytical practice has given us experience of cases where patients on the borderline of dementia precox have been brought back to normal life. Even if anatomical lesions or organic symptoms were consistently present, science ought not to imagine the psychological standpoint could advisedly be neglected, or the undoubted psychological relationship be given up as unimportant. If, for instance, carcinoma were to prove an infectious disease, the peculiar growth and degenerative process of carcinomatous cells would still be a consistent factor requiring investigation on its own account. But, as I have said, the correlation between the anatomical findings and the psychological picture of the disease is so loose that it is extremely desirable to study the psychological side of it thoroughly. Part 1. Psychiatry is the stepchild of medicine. All the other branches of medicine have one great advantage over it. The scientific methods can be applied. There are things to be seen and felt, physical and chemical methods of investigation to be followed, the microscope shows the dreaded bacillus, the surgeon's knife halts at no difficulty and gives us glimpses of most inaccessible organs of vital importance. Psychiatry, which engages in the exploration of the mind, stands ever at the door, seeking in vain to weigh and measure as with other departments of science. We have long known that we have to do with an we have long known that we have to do with a definite organ, the brain, but only beyond the brain, beyond the morphological basis, do we reach what is important for us, the mind, as indefinable as it ever was, still eluding any explanation, no matter how ingenious. Former ages, endowing the mind with substance, and personifying every incomprehensible occurrence in nature, regarded mental disorder as the work of evil spirits. The patient was looked upon as one possessed, and the methods of treatment were such as fitted this conception. This medieval conception occasionally gains credence and expression even today. A classical example is the driving out of the devil which the elder pastor Blumhart carried out successfully in the famous case of Gottlieb in Deltas. To the honor of the Middle Ages, let it also be said that there are to be found early evidences of sound rationalism. In the 16th century at the Julius Hospital in Würzburg, mental patients were already treated side by side with others physically ill and the treatment seems to have been really humane. With the opening of the modern era, and with the dawn of the first scientific ideas, the original barbaric personification of the unknown great power gradually disappeared. A change arose in the conception of mental disease in favor of a more philosophic, moral attitude. The old view that every misfortune was the revenge of the offended gods returned, new-clothed, to fit the times just as physical diseases can, in many cases, be regarded as self-inflicted on account of negligence, mental diseases were likewise considered to be due to some moral injury or sin. Behind this conception, the angry godhead also stood. Such views played a great role right up to the beginning of last century, especially in Germany. In France, however, about the same time, a new idea was appearing— destined to sway psychiatry for a hundred years. Pinel, whose statue fittingly stands at the gateway of the Salpetra in Paris, 
took away the chains from the insane and thus freed them from the symbol of the criminal. In a very real way, he formulated for the world the humane and scientific conception of modern times. A little later, Escorol and Bale discovered that certain forms of insanity ended in death after a relatively short time, and that certain constant changes in the brain could be demonstrated post-mortem. Escarol had described as an entity general paralysis of the insane, or, as it was popularly called, softening of the brain, a disease which is always bound up with chronic inflammatory degeneration of the cerebral matter. Thus was laid the foundation of the dogma, which you will find repeated in every textbook of psychiatry, that is, diseases of the mind are diseases of the brain. Confirmation of this conception was added about the same time by Gall's discoveries, which traced partial or complete loss of the power of speech, a psychical capacity, to a lesion in the region of the left lower frontal convolution. Somewhat later, this view proved to be of general applicability. Innumerable cases of extreme idiocy or other intense mental disorders were found to be caused by tumors of the brain. Toward the end of the 19th century, Wernicke, recently deceased, localized the speech center in the left temporal lobe. This epoch-making discovery raised hopes to the highest pitch. It was expected that at no distant day, every characteristic and every psychical activity would be assigned a place in the cortical gray matter. Gradually, increased attempts were made to trace the primary mental changes in the psychosis back to certain parallel changes in the brain. Meinert, the famous Viennese psychiatrist, described a formal scheme in which the alteration in blood supply in certain regions was to play the chief part in the origin of psychosis. Wernicke made a similar but far more ingenious attempt at a morphological explanation of psychical disorders. The visible result of this tendency is seen in the fact that even the smallest and least renowned asylum has, today, its anatomical laboratory where cerebral sections are cut, stained, and microscoped. Our numerous psychiatric journals are full of morphological contributions, investigations into the structure and distribution of cells in the cortex, and other varying source of disorders in the different mental diseases. Psychiatry has come into fame as gross materialism, and quite rightly, for it is on the road, or rather reached it long ago, to put the organ, the instrument, above function. Function has become the dependent accessory of its organs the mind the dependent accessory of the brain. In modern mental therapy, the mind has been the loser. Whilst great progress has been made in cerebral anatomy, of the mind we know less than nothing. Current psychiatry behaves like a man who thinks he can unriddle the meaning and importance of a building by a mineralogical investigation of its stones. Let us attempt to realize in which mental diseases obvious changes in the brain are found and what is their proportion. In the last four years, we have received 1,325 patients at Bergolzi, 331 a year. Of these, 9% suffered from congenital psychic anomalies. By this is understood a certain inborn defect to the psyche. Of these 9%, about a quarter were imbeciles. Here we meet certain changes in the brain, such as microcephalus, hydrocephalus, malformations or absence of portions of the brain. The remaining three-quarters of these congenital defects present no typical changes in the brain. Three percent of our patients suffer from epileptic mental troubles. 
In the course of epilepsy, there arises gradually a typical degeneration of the brain. The degeneration is, however, only discoverable in severe cases and when the disease has existed for some time. If the attacks have only existed for a relatively short time, not more than a few years, the brain as a rule shows nothing. 17% of our patients suffer from progressive paralysis and senile dementia. Both diseases present characteristic changes in the brain. In paralysis, there is most extensive shrinkage of the brain, so that the cortex is often reduced by one half. The frontal portions of the brain, more especially, may be reduced to a third of the normal weight. There is a similar destruction of substance in senile decay. 14% of the patients annually received are cases of poisoning, at least 13% of these being due to alcohol. As a rule, in slight cases, nothing is to be found in the brain. In only a relatively few severe cases is there shrinkage of the cortex, generally of slight degree. The number of these severe cases amounts to less than 1% of the yearly cases of alcoholism. 6% of the patients suffer from so-called maniacal depressive insanity, which includes the manics and the melancholics. The essence of this disease is readily intelligible to the public. Melancholia is the condition of abnormal sadness without disorder of intelligence or memory. Mania is the opposite, the rule being an abnormally excited state with great restlessness, likewise without deep disturbance of intelligence and memory. In this disease, there are no demonstrable morphological changes in the brain. 45% of the patients suffer from the real and common mental disease called dementia precox. The name is a very unhappy one, for the dementia is not always precocious, nor in all cases is there dementia. Unfortunately, the disease is too often incurable. Even in the best cases, in those that recover, where the outside public would not observe any abnormality, there is always present some defect in the emotional life. The picture presented by the disease is extraordinarily diverse. Generally, there is some disorder of feeling, frequently delusions and hallucinations. As a rule, there is nothing to be found in the brain. Even in cases of a most severe type, lasting for years, an intact brain is not infrequently found post-mortem. In a few cases, only certain slight changes are present, which, however, cannot as yet be reduced to any law. To sum up, in round figures, a quarter of our insane patients show more or less clearly extensive changes and destruction of the brain, while three-fourths have a brain which seems to be generally unimpaired, or at most exhibit such changes as give no explanation of the psychological disturbance. These figures offer the best possible proof that the purely morphological viewpoint of modern psychiatry leads only very indirectly, if at all, to the understanding of the mental disorder, which is our aim. We must take into account the fact that those mental diseases which show the most marked disturbances of the brain end in death. For this reason, the chronic inmates of the asylum form its real population, consisting of 70 to 80 percent of the cases of dementia precox, that is, of patients in whom anatomical changes are practically non-existent. The psychiatry of the future must come to grips with the core of the thing. The path is thus made clear. It can only be by way of psychology. Hence, in our Zurich clinic, we have entirely discarded the anatomical view and turn to the psychological investigation of insanity. As most of our patients suffer from dementia precox, we were naturally concerned with this as our chief problem.
the older asylum physicians paid great attention to the psychological precursors of mental disorder, just as the public still does, following a true instinct. We accepted this hint and carefully investigated the previous psychological history whenever possible. Our trouble was richly rewarded, for we often found, to our surprise, that the disease broke out at a moment of some great emotion which, in its turn, had arisen in a so-called normal way. We found, moreover, that in the mental disease which ensued, a number of symptoms occurred which it was quite labor in vain to study from the morphological standpoint. These same symptoms, however, were comprehensible when considered from the standpoint of the individual's previous history. Freud's fundamental investigations into the psychology of hysteria and dreams afforded us the greatest stimulus and help in our work. A few instances of the latest method in psychiatry will make the subject clearer than mere dry theory. In order to bring home to you the difference in our conception, I will first describe the medical history in the older fashion and subsequently give the solution characteristic of the new departure. The case to be considered is that of a cook, age 32. She had no hereditary taint, was always industrious and conscientious, and had never been noticeable for eccentric behavior or the like. Quite recently, she became acquainted with a young man whom she wished to marry. From that time on, she began to show certain peculiarities. She often spoke of him not liking her much, was frequently out of sorts, ill-tempered, and sat alone brooding. Once, she ornamented her Sunday hat very strikingly with red and green feathers. Another day, she bought a pair of pince-nez in order to wear them when she went out walking with her fiancé. One day the sudden idea that her teeth were rather ugly would not let her rest, and she resolved to get a plate. Although there was no absolute need, she had all her teeth out under an anesthetic. The night after the operation, she suddenly had a severe anxiety attack. She cried and moaned that she was damned forever, for she had committed a great sin. She should not have allowed her teeth to be extracted. People must pray for her, that God might pardon her sin. In vain, her friends attempted to talk her out of her fears, to assure her that the extraction of teeth was really no sin. It availed nothing. At daybreak, she became somewhat quieter. She worked throughout the day. On the following nights, the attacks were repeated. When consulted by the patient, I found her quiet, but she wore a rather vacant expression. I talked to her about the operation, and she assured me it was not so dreadful to have teeth extracted, but still it was a great sin, from which position, despite every persuasion, she could not be moved. She continually repeated in plaintive, pathetic tones, I should not have allowed my teeth to be extracted. Oh, yes, that was a great sin which God will never forgive me. She gave the impression of real insanity. A few days later, her condition grew worse, and she had to be brought into the asylum. The anxiety attack had extended and was persistent, and the mental disorder lasted for months. The history shows a series of entirely unrelated symptoms. Why all the queer story of the hat and pince-nez? Why those anxiety attacks? Why this delusion that the extraction of her teeth was an unpardonable sin? Nothing here is clear. The morphologically-minded psychiatrist would say, This is just a typical case of dementia precox. It is the essence of insanity, of madness, to talk of nothing but mysteries. The standpoint of the diseased mind toward the world is displaced, is mad. What is no sin for the normal, the patient finds a sin. It is a bizarre delusion characteristic of dementia precox. 
the extravagant lamentation about this supposed sin is what is known as inadequate emotional emphasis. The queer ornamentation of the hat, the pince-nez, are bizarre notions such as are very common in these patients. Somewhere in the brain, certain cells have fallen into disorder and manufacture illogical, senseless ideas of one kind and another which are quite without psychological meaning. The patient is obviously a hereditary degenerate with a weak brain, having a kink which is the origin of the disorder. For some reason or other, the disease has suddenly broken out. It could just as easily have broken out at any other time. Perhaps we should have had to capitulate to these arguments had real psychological analysis not come to our aid. In filling up the certificate required for her removal to the asylum, it transpired that many years ago she had had an affair which terminated. Her lover left her with an illegitimate child. Nobody had been told of this. When she was again in love, a dilemma arose, and she asked herself, what will this new lover say about it? At first, she postponed the marriage, becoming more and more worried, and then the eccentricities began. To understand these, we must immerse ourselves in the psychology of a naive soul. If we have to disclose some painful secret to a beloved person, we first try to strengthen his love in order to obtain beforehand a guarantee of his forgiveness. We do it by flattery or by caresses, or we try to impress the value of our own personality in order to raise it in the eyes of the other. Our patient decked herself out with beautiful feathers, which to her simple taste seemed precious. The wearing of pince-nez increases the respect of children even of a mature age. And who does not know people who will have their teeth extracted out of pure vanity in order that they may wear a plate to improve their appearance? After such an operation, most people have a slight nervous reaction, and then everything becomes more difficult to bear. This was, as a matter of fact, just the moment when the catastrophe did occur, in her terror lest her fiancé should break with her when he heard of her previous life. That was the first anxiety attack. Just as the patient had not acknowledged her secret in all these years, so she now sought to guard it, and shifted the fear in her guilty conscience on to the extraction of the teeth. She thus followed a method well known to us, for when we dare not acknowledge some great sin, we deplore some small sin with greater emphasis. The problem seemed insoluble to the weak and sensitive mind of the patient, hence the affect became insurmountably great. This is the mental desire as presented from the psychological side. The series of apparently meaningless events, the so-called madness, have now a meaning. A significance appertains to the delusions, making the patient more human to us. Here is a person like ourselves, beset by universal human problems, no longer merely a cerebral machine thrown out of gear. Hitherto, we thought that the insane patient revealed nothing to us by symptoms, save the senseless products of his disordered cerebral cells, but that was academic wisdom reeking of the study. When we penetrate to the human secrets of our patients, we recognize mental disease to be an unusual reaction to emotional problems which are in no wise foreign to ourselves and the delusion discloses the psychological system upon which it is based. The light which shines forth from this conception seems to us so enormously powerful because it forces us into the innermost depths of that tremendous disorder which is most common in our asylums, and hitherto least understood. By reason of the craziness of the symptoms, it is the type that strikes the public as madness in excelsis. End of chapter 13, part 1